0: Hello, and welcome to a Coffee Room Chat in ENT. This is the first episode of a new podcast series, which has been put together by the collaboration between the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh and ENT UK. So I'm James Tyson, and I am an ENT surgeon from Cambridge, but I'm also the director of e-learning for ENT UK. So I've had the pleasure of putting this series together, um, along with a a lot of help from the team at the Royal College of Surgeons uh, in Edinburgh. So I hope you'll enjoy it. Each of these episodes takes on the format of an informal coffee room chat between two consultants who are both experts in their field. And they're going to be discussing what's happened uh, with their patients in between the cases in theatre. So, this means they'll discuss the nuances of managing different important and maybe challenging topics in ENT. Um, And also, they're going to be able to give you those extra special tips that will help improve your surgical technique. This is the sort of information that really you can't easily find in books and other publications, uh, and it requires experience. So, this series has been put together with the help of the different subspecialty groups within ENT-UK, that's the British Society of Otology, Head and Neck, British Society of Facial Plastic Surgery, along with the British Rhinological Society. So we'll cover a broad set of topics across the series. But this first episode is, in, is from the British Society of Otology, and it's on endoscopic ear surgery. Now, I have two speakers. Uh, Wendy Smith, so she was appointed a consultant in Kettering Hospital in 2010, and her interests include surgery for cholesteatoma, including endoscopic ear surgery. So she's a keen educator, and she's a co chair for the intercollegiate DOHNS and MRCS ENT exams, and she's also the education secretary for the British Society of Otology. Interestingly, Wendy's also recently embarked on a PhD, although something completely outside the field of ENT. Now, joining her will be Gerard Kelly. Gerard is also an ENT surgeon and he works at Leeds Teaching Hospitals. So he specialises in otology, neurotology, both in children and adults. And he's been there at Leeds since 2001. So uh, Gerard has a, again, a major interest in endoscopic, middle ear and mastoid surgery. So he performs most of his uh, ear surgery, either totally endoscopically or endoscopically assisted. And Gerard's a member of council of the British Society of Otology, and, and he also runs the BSO balance course. So two very well qualified people to discuss this important topic of endoscopic ear surgery. And so I can hand over to uh, Wendy Smith and Gerard Kelly. So both Wendy Smith and Gerard Kelly are now going to discuss together, really, the role of the endoscope as a as a, as a tool in ear surgery and how it can provide really fantastic visualisation of the middle ear. But importantly, how to get the nice bloodless field so you can see what you're doing. Uh, the different techniques, which you can you've got to compensate for, having just one hand with an endoscope but you have two previously with a microscope and so it will also discuss the limitations so which cholestytomas you can remove totally endoscopic but which of those really need a microscope as well hi wendy what what have you been up to
1: well i've just finished doing the first case today um i had an eight-year-old boy who had a perforation of his eardrum the right ear um and i must say it's it's great you know you can it's much quicker doing them now endoscopically um mm. i know you're quite a fan of the endoscopic surgery as well aren't you
2: yeah i've i started um oh probably five five or six years ago now I went on the glasgow endoscopic uh, ear course fantastic course and uh, and came back really charged up and wanting to uh, wanting to do it i'd done a bit of it before that uh, but that really put me in the mood for doing it and uh, i think i think there's some real benefits from the optical images that you get with the scope rather than the microscope
1: yeah i mean i think it's it is it's much easier once you get used to it but it's hard to begin with and can be really quite frustrating because you're basically limited to one hand and i don't use a holder Uh, i think um the courses um talk about the fact that if you keep the um, endoscope in the same place you do get some heating and I suppose especially if we're doing more complex ear surgery we're worried that we might heat up the nerve as well so it's probably quite good to keep the suction going and wash out the ear if we need to but yeah um, yeah, no for these cases it's great because it's actually really not much more than children having a grommet inserted so like today um, it was an anterior inferior perforation um mm-hmm. which you know traditionally when i was a registrar we would have been told to, to post oral incision, incision said, yeah, and then yeah. um you know it's a big or a bigger procedure sometimes having to take the anterior canal wall down so you can get good placement of the graft yeah. um and head you know, bandage head at the end bandage. of it yeah, yeah yeah and then you know they could be off school for a week or whatever whereas now you know it, sometimes it can you know it takes as long as it takes but sometimes you can do them quite easily in about 20 minutes or so uh, especially if they're suitable for the um, like butterfly graft technique have you yes. used that one
2: um i don't tend to use the butterfly technique i, I just i've never never got got the got used to doing it I certainly wasn't trained to do it so I, I'll, I'll sometimes put a a push through just with tragal perichondrium with some gel foam in the in the middle ear but i haven't used the butterfly. Butterfly technique. Well, mm-hmm. What were you talking about? The endoscope, the the endoscope, the the holder. Um, yeah, that that was an initial thought, wasn't it? But you you lose uh, parallax if you don't move you do. the endoscope around. You can you you convert what is a two dimensional image in your head into a three dimensional image, and and you know that that's one of the criticisms, or you don't get a, a three dimensional image, but you get. Uh, a synthetic three dimensional image with parallax if you move the endoscope around and yeah, I'm, I'm always moving the endoscope around, taking it out, cleaning it um, to, to, to get a, a nice view with the endoscope. I think it's really important to uh, to get bloodless field, obviously, as we do with ear surgery, but also to uh, to get rid of all the hairs from the external ear canal. Um, and I've I've gone through several iterations of trying to do that yes, using we'll do. art artery forceps of pulling them out, um, cutting yeah exactly <laughs> uh, get, get, cutting them with uh, cutting with a scalpel or cutting them with scissors. Um, but I think that's really quite important. The other thing that I like to, to do is I think it probably makes a difference. Is once you've done that and once you've irrigated the ear, is I get uh, a swab ten by ten and. But put it in um, an artery forceps and wrap it around and then sort of almost like a cotton bud, clean the ear and dry the ear because it's really the oil from the hairs that coat the end of the endoscope or the lens of the endoscope and then reduce your visibility or uh, adjust, your, uh, adjust your focus or, or reduce your focus so that you can get a good image.
1: Yeah. And I think also it's important to uh, remember that we do need a bloodless field um, really quite early on. And that's part of our preoperative checks. So um, it's great if you work with an anaesthetist who's used to working yeah. with you. Um, but if you've got um, a newer anaesthetist, uh, someone who's not used to doing ear surgery, it can be quite difficult. Um, so if the patient's suitable, then and the anaesthetist is happy, then remifentanil works really well. Mm-hmm um and because often these are young fit patients so when you drop the blood pressure they get reflex tachycardia um i also am a great fan of um uh having the um co2 expired that's around four has a really good vasoconstrictor effect um in fact one of the things i say is that all uh, bleeding is anesthetic uh, to the <laughs> medical students of <as> the well, <laughs> because uh, i do nothing and uh, when the C- pco2 hits four the bleeding stops um yep. a bit of
2: hypotension, head up
1: definitely and um also tranexamic acid seems to make a difference mm. although part of the problem yeah. is you need to really get it in almost as soon as the patient's asleep in the anesthetic room right. because It takes a little while to work and sometimes these operations can be quite quick and I'm sure that it's only starting to take effect when the operation's almost over. Yeah, um, I I, I,
2: I used to put a port wick in with some one in 10,000 adrenaline. Um, I learned that on the the Glasgow course, but I tend not to do it now just because, you know, after a few cases you get a bit slicker at it a bit quicker and I I don't think it's completely uh, necessary now. Um, Really get the... uh, get the lignospan in the right place you know and with the endoscope you can you can beautifully see the junction between the hair bearing skin or what used to be the hair bearing skin in fact what i do is i I inject it um the hair bearing skin and the non-hair bearing skin the junction of that and then then i remove the hair and that takes a bit of time and just Mm -hmm. gives the uh, lignospan a bit of time to work and um And again, on the courses that I've been to, they always say, you know, start with the endoscope because it starts and it's quite difficult at the start because you do get a bit of bleeding and maybe you're not used to it. And when you only take the endoscope out, you know, halfway through the case, I think you lose a a bit of that skill for starting it off. And um, it's it's beautiful when you put the endoscope really close to the annulus, really close to the, the annulus and you just tease the annulus out and you can beautifully see the annulus you can see the the corda and even you know initially you see the stapedius and you see the pyramid and you see the um the the stapes and the incus sometimes you 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 don't get a view of that at all with the microscope until you remove some of the scutum
1: exactly i think it's uh fantastic the visualization and of course um if you've got a very prominent anterior canal wall you can still get around Mm. it often by just dropping your hands you can get a better view of that anterior rim sometimes it's still tricky to um like freshen the edge there because you can't get the mm. other instruments in and um that's you right know, yeah. I, I often feel i want to do the because uh, i'm right-handed it's easier for me to do um the right ear fast. Right yeah. but then yeah. if it's say um or more attic work then the left is mm. easier but it's going yes. to be the opposite for other people who if they're left-handed
2: Mm. Well, one of the things that I picked up in a course is to use Lone Star retractors. These are little fish hoot retractors that are um, disposable. Uh, the five millimeter ones are are blue and um, one into the tragus and you pull that over the, the face. Make sure you put a bit of um, a few swabs between the face and the Lone Star retractor elastic and just clip that to the drape and then do the same posteriorly with the uh, the ear canal and that that just opens it up a bit and yeah. if a small ear canal um it, it seems to make it easier to do it
1: and the other thing as well is if you um there's a tendency if you've got a really narrow ear canal that you might just want to put a little bit of um lignospan in you, uh, instead hmm. of having more in fact if you put a good amount in and then even put the limpets in to go and squeeze if you like the it helps disperse and then you get a better view. So
0: oh, I think it's yes. definitely
1: easier starting uh, endoscopic surgery when you've got a nice big ear canal. But mm-hmm. um, you know, you can do them in the six, seven, eight year olds as well now. Yeah. You know, so what
2: what endoscope do you use?
1: Um, I use one which is about eleven um, centimeters long. If you get it too mm-hmm. short, um, the other instrument yeah. gets in the way. And if it's too long, I mean, for you, fourteen is fine as well. But yes. I think you get much more like tremor and that's the other problem isn't it because on the screen everyone knows uh what you're doing that's
2: right well that, <laughs> but I, I mean that's, that's it is good entertainment <laughs> one of the beauties of it though is that everyone sees what you see it's not like the the microscope if you're right eye dominant and you've got a left camera and they don't quite see and you know how many times have we watched videos or being in a course and said oh you're not on screen you're not on screen and and so you can't hide anything training's fantastic the nurses absolutely love it the scrub staff absolutely love it because they see exactly what you can see and all these things that you were saying you know you know this is the this is the stapedius and thinking what on earth is that and suddenly they see exactly what you're seeing exactly what you're doing and also i think for for training you can see exactly what the registrar or your trainee is doing and um i and I, but i'm annoyed with the registrars i get very annoyed with them because they're, they're, they're usually good. pretty good at it they're too good at it they, because they've they've trained in feds they're the playstation generation that do things off the screen and um and yeah they start off and they're usually pretty good
1: yes so um you said that you use some uh like perichondrium or um mm. cartilage what do you do if someone's already like they've got a piercing in that tragus or if yeah. it's, um, already been used and it's revision yeah. surgery
2: i um, i've used a variety of things sometimes uh if they've got a tragal piercing you can still get yeah. more um uh, more d- deeper more um medial tragal perichondrium um or sometimes I just make an incision um, within the hair, actually, but not an endoral incision and take um, a temporalis fascia. Sometimes I make a a, a low, almost posturricular incision, but only the lower limb of it and take a pericranium, take the periosteum of yeah. the skull. That's quite nice material. And I have used um, more recently Biodesign, these synthetic Uh, collagen material um, which I think is quite nice you do have to let it soak and hydrate um, uh, so that you get a you get a nice graft but it doesn't it doesn't ruffle and curl up so much as other materials do so you can you know keep it in the ear for a long time and move it around whereas maybe with um, a patient's own material you can't do that so much
1: Yeah, so it's easier to place in some ways, isn't it? It's a bit Mm. firmer, you know, you're not having the the timing of uh, the crispy bacon or the fascia to soften and get it uh, good. And what about uh, packing the ear afterwards? Because there's been a lot of, um, Mm. you know, variation. I know when I was doing my training, a lot of people used bit, but then I saw some horrible bit allergies. And so I started using you know some something like Betnovate C hc um yes. ointments yep. or ribbon gauze yep. that's worked quite well but i know a lot of people nowadays are using likes of your gel foam sponges with right. steroid drops
2: yeah i i um i think never say never do you but I, I i try to never use BIP if the patient has had a previous operation um so I, i'm really going away with from BIP but I'll still I'll still use it for maybe an initial mastoid uh, where there's a cavity. Uh, but otherwise, I I don't tend to use BIP and I use um, the the gel foam, and um, usually with a bit of otocom in an ear <laughs> applicating syringe and inject that, and then put a bit of cotton wool just in the concha really in the in the meatus. Uh, sometimes I'll put a ribbon gauze impregnated with otocomb which is an antifungal and a steroid and an aminoglycoside as well um but it it does mean that you can perhaps cut down on one of the follow-up consultations you know you don't bring people back at a week or two for pack removal i bring them back at four or six weeks um and usually by then the the gel foam and the the ointment has has dissolved and uh you, you can you know, avoid that follow-up appointment.
1: Yeah, and also, I mean, it's, as you were saying before, it's fantastic for actually the endoscopes for giving you a great view of the middle ear. I have had a problem before, though, once where um, uh, when I was lifting up the ear canal, there was a dehiscent high jugular bulb. And it was actually quite difficult to manage with just the endoscope. So I did pack the air with um, uh, adrenaline-soaked ribbon gauze and then actually ended up getting the microscope in. Um, So is that something you have on standby just in case you need it?
2: Uh, well i 'm old now, so uh, i I need the microscope to take a tragal perichondrial graft, or at least i I like it <laughs> so i I usually have the microscope on standby, and often i 'll use a uh an island graft, and I quite like having the microscope yes. to to prepare that um you don't need it i probably now i wouldn't even need it, but I mm-hmm. do like to have the microscope to do that and um and and I, I quite like taking the tragal perichondrium but leaving the tragus and and i know some people take the tragus out or tr- take part of the tragal cartilage with the perichondrium and then separate it and sometimes people then put the the cartilage back but i quite like just trying to take the cart the take the perichondrium on its own without yeah. the tragus you get less bleeding it's and and if you did need uh, revision surgery or you did need some tragus at a later date cartilage then you would still have it
1: yeah and I think also it's quite nice to leave a rim of the cartilage anyway yes. so don't yeah. take the whole lot one it's good for the cosmesis but also if the patient needs to wear hearing aid afterwards I believe it makes it much easier for the fitment of moulds as well and um, yep. so yeah it's something to to remember isn't it so what yeah. have you been doing this morning then
2: well I did a clestiotoma operation um and um i started as i said it started a few years ago doing endoscopic ear surgery and i remember going on a course and uh, one of the speakers um said that you know you should be able to do 75 percent of um operations uh, totally endoscopically and i came back from that course thinking right this is this is my goal uh, but actually it very much depends on your patient population if you have a population who have very large cholestytomas you won't be able to do any completely right. endoscopically uh, but if you have you know small attic cholestytomas uh confined to the attic you, you might be able to do them all endoscopically so i started trying to do everything endoscopically and really i i i i probably took on work that was best done by a combined approach and right. i tried to do it all endoscopically removing the scutum removing the scutum and almost turning in the patient into a, a small cavity which is yeah which, yes exactly which is not <laughs> what you want so um and there was one case where um i i did totally endoscopically and i removed the clessitoma and uh, reconstructed the ear it looked beautiful i i put a um uh quartz Clip prosthesis in with a bit of cartilage got a good hearing result and six months down the line the patient presented with a a discharging ear and i thought what's happened here did a a diffusion-weighted non-epi mr scan and she had a big big cholesterol in the mastoid which hadn't hadn't regrown but i had missed it it must have had a small neck and um and, and i had left big clestotoma in the mastoid and had taken the attic or part of the attic and part of the middle ear component away or all of the attic all of the middle ear component but left that so you know should you do on everyone an mr scan before their clestotoma operation maybe if you if you're trying to do totally endoscopic you should i'm not sure what the answer is to that question yeah i
1: mean i i must say i've done that because uh it's almost a learning curve as well Mm. um to see the value of the non-epi diffusion-weighted mri imaging yeah um so i think it is useful sometimes you've done a ct scan anyway so if you Mm. find that say the mastoid is well aerated then you don't need to do the mri sometimes i you've had a child with say a discharging ear with a perforation um and you do think what's happening here you know it's just not clearing up and it's a lot of discharge and foul smelling and there i've actually done non-epi because it's non-irradiation uh as well um and actually found a big cholesteatoma in a in a young girl um yeah and then did the CT after that to then, right. uh, you know, have their combined approach. So that would have been someone that we would have missed um, if we'd just done, say, a moringoplasty. Yes. So um, I think it is so, good from that point of view.
2: In this case this morning, then, what I did was um, I, I hadn't done a, a diffusion-weighted non-EPI MR scan. I had done a CT and CT pretty much 100% LCT nowadays. Um it's rare for me to see a CT with, you know, mastoid air cells that are, yeah. um, that are well aerated. Even in small cholestomes, you get a bit of glue or you get a bit of uh, granulation tissue or cholesterol granuloma. So, um, I've almost gone full circle now. And from trying to do as much endoscopically as I can, I now will mostly start off with the endoscope, do a canal wall incision. Um, 12 o'clock, six o'clock and uh, re- retract some of the canal wall the skin. And then I do a sulcus post incision, uh flap and do a cortical mastoidectomy and then use the endoscope to remove the clestotoma. Even when I'm thinking, Oh, there's probably not going to be a mastoid clestotoma there, but that's just that one case. That one case is, uh, has probably made Gosh, me do yeah. that when I, when I thought it scarred me exactly when I <laughs> thought, you know, this is a lovely case, you know, I'm, and and I, i usually write in my operation note you know what i think of the removal and i you know oh chance of sinus tympani residuum rescan early or something like that and i'd written in that you know probably 100 percent removal and there was a massive residuum um so that's just maybe i'll maybe i'll go another full circle or another 180 degrees and do more totally endoscopic ones. But um, certainly my population tend to have quite large cholesteatoma. So doing a cortical mastoidectomy and you can do a cortical mastoidectomy quite, quite quickly when you're yes. used to the cases.
1: Exactly. Yes. Well, that's good. Well, I suppose we're going to um, have a mixed patients ready, aren't we? So
2: absolutely. Excellent. So yeah. So endoscope, uh, fantastic it's just a tool though and uh, like using another tool um the the basic surgical tenets of exposure and retraction and removal of disease removal of infection still stand um and it's very important to be used to and handy with a microscope because there will be cases where you will you will definitely need to use that um you said the uh the high jugular bulb—a nice way to to stop bleeding from a jugular bulb or uh, a, a sigmoid uh, that you've made a hole in—is to put a little bit of muscle over it. Muscle's got thromboplastins in it, which really cause nice coagulation. And uh, I've got I've got out a few sticky situations, mostly with acoustics, doing uh, making a little hole in the in the jugular mm-hmm. bulb and being able to pack it just with a small bit of muscle. And it's amazing how quickly it stops with
1: that. That's very useful. To know. thank you. Okay. Okay, okay, Wendy, well, case.
0: back to work. Yep. And okay. uh, I'll see you soon.
1: Okay, bye bye.
0: Okay, bye. So, thank you very much to both Wendy Smith and Gerard Kelly there. We've got a much better understanding now of you know, when the endoscope should be used, what the advantages are, and also some of those really useful tips to help you during surgery to make the view as optimised as possible. So we'll we'll let them both get back to work. And uh, hopefully you've enjoyed that, uh, because next week we've got a really, really excellent episode. Um, And this time returning to Rhinology. And we have both our China Jayswell from from Manchester uh, and Caroline Smith from Northern Ireland. And they're going to discuss how to manage frontal sinusitis because that can give you really serious complications. So I hope you'll join us for that next week.